It takes a lot of thought to buy artificial intelligence. Contractors trying to sell the stuff need to put some careful thinking into their proposals and not rush through them. Then there's an even bigger question for contractors. Using AI to draft the proposal itself, anything could happen. We get some tips from attorney Craig Smith, a partner at Wiley Ryan. Mr. Smith, good to have you with us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Is that something that clients are asking you about these days? Do contractors want to apply artificial intelligence to, I guess, generative AI to the writing of proposals? I think it's on everyone's mind, whether I talk to clients or I talk to peers in industry. It's something that feels maybe a little inevitable that at some point this is going to be an unremarkable activity, no different from sending a proposal by email. But maybe the analogy to think about is it's like self-driving cars. It can feel like something that's coming, and it's felt like something that's coming for a while. But right now, with where we are, with the metaphorical rules of the road, you don't want the car that's driving itself into wet cement. Sure. And just on the legalistic side of this, before we get into the bigger question, you know, federal contracts can have hundreds of clauses. Sometimes not every clause is applicable, and their contract writing systems will maybe, if they're smart enough, leave those clauses out. But then there are clauses that, what do they say, operate in law, even if it's not specifically included in a particular transaction. Could that be a tripping point for AI? Oh, it wasn't in there, but it operates in law, therefore you're in trouble. That's probably an area where you could see an AI tool being developed to check for those types of clauses that are missing. And I think there are some technical aspects that really sophisticated AI companies are going to figure out because federal procurement, while not it's not runic text, there are unique aspects Comes of it. Comes close. It feels like it at times. But it makes writing a proposal for a federal agency different from writing a commercial proposal or even a comparable agency in another country or a state. Those are technical aspects that with time and enough work, I think, can get solved. But there are other risks out there, Tom, that I think we're still just seeing a lot of uncertainty around and are going to take some time to sort out. What do you see as the top risks? I mean, in my mind, something that could get you in False Claims Act territory would be one of them. That's exactly right. So imagine a term that's been around probably for, for decades, you probably know it well, is vaporware. The idea of writing a proposal about something that doesn't exist yet. And you could see a generative AI tool writing a proposal for a new widget or a new service that you have no intention of ever offering. The way to guard against that, of course, is the touchstone, I think, of using any AI tool for writing any content for a company, which is having humans involved in the process and reviewing to make sure. Are we offering these widgets? Are these our indirect rates? Is this responsive to what we actually want to offer the agency for this particular opportunity? Because there's also the problem or the challenge for these generative tools anyway, is that they decay over time. That is to say, they multiply the error that they introduced, and it's like multiplying fractions. Each time you run it through again, it gets a little further off course to the point where some of them can't add 2 plus 2 anymore after they've been run through a 1,000 cycles. That's an area where I think it's interesting what goes into the black box. Sometimes we don't know all of it for an AI generative tool. And then how the black box works, we don't always know. And as a lawyer, those are the uncertainty is something that is what keeps me up at night. And so I think, you know, the more proprietary a tool is, the less I know about it, the less interested I am in, in necessarily shouldering that kind of risk. So I think you're exactly right. If I don't know how the tool is working, 
then I feel less comfortable. But if I have to spend more and more time understanding how the tool works and maintaining it, it's also as a practical matter, unclear how much additional value I'm getting out of it. Right. So the last thing that a bidder should do then is take the solicitation, throw it into the chat GPT, and then mail off to the agency what came out. That is absolutely right for a host of reasons. And you can imagine, I mean, we've all heard about the lawyer who submitted the brief with made up cases. You can imagine that any tool that's out there that's open source or generally available or even at a modest fee, any of those tools might propose things that uh, violate one of the the basic edicts you learn as a capture or a lawyer. You got to respond to what the solicitation asks for, not for what you think the agency necessarily needs in in the best case. There are any number of reasons for for just saying, don't don't send it in, pull it back out and ship it off. We're speaking with Craig Smith. He's a partner at the law firm Wiley Rhine, and you have compiled another list of recommendations. What are some of the other things companies thinking of using AI should keep in mind when writing solicitations or bids, I, I should there, say? Yeah, there are a number of questions that when I huddle with our colleagues who are in, we have something of an informal AI working group, we think about how does the tool actually work? So one question is, what goes into it? Probably open source items, items available on the web, that's understandable, but are we getting proposals that are just from our company, which may not be enough to help tune a model to writing proposals for pick your agency? Or is it getting proposals that maybe are collected through Freedom Information Act requests, which are publicly available in a sense, but maybe a couple of years behind where you need them to be? Or they're getting proposals maybe from other companies that are using the tool, depending on the terms of service, that maybe that's a permissible thing for the AI company to do, in which case I'd start to wonder, do I, in a very indirect way, have access to a competitor's sensitive information in a way that might create some risk under something like the Procurement Integrity Act? So that's, that's one question we talk about. I think another is the flip side of that. What's the company doing with the information I submit? So is the tool using servers located only in the United States? That would be important to me if I had to submit any export controlled information that you know might be part of the proposal process. Another question is, will my proposal be folded into the model for tuning that you mentioned, Tom, or for other purposes? Will my contents, maybe my secret sauce, start showing up in proposals generated for my direct competitors? So those are the sorts of questions we talk about internally that we would encourage any company considering a generative AI tool to really think closely about. Yeah, you answered a question I was going to ask. Is there a possibility of some kind of a community generative AI that is just focused on federal contracting for the contractor community to use? But if something from Lockheed is going to infect something that Northrop is trying to say, or whatever the case might be, then probably there wouldn't be too much uptake of it. I think that's the challenge that any company that is interested in offering an AI tool they face is how do we how do we get enough proposals to where the tool is useful, but not in a way that any particular contractor feels uncomfortable about what we're doing with it. And then there's another component to this is just having proposals only tells you how proposals get written. It doesn't tell you which ones are good. And so the other question is, what are the evaluations of these proposals? Sometimes you could get that from public information like Government Accountability Office bid protest decisions will often have the ratings included. 
But that may be only a portion of it. And that's only a fraction of a fraction of federal procurements. So how that we're going to have access to that. And then also making sure there's access to the solicitation. What's the proposal responding to? Many are available publicly on the system for award management, but many are not available on publicly available tools that I can just find through an Internet search. So maybe the real question is, if you're trying to save time here and time is money for a law firm or for a contractor, is can the chat GPT, for lack of a better word, the generative AI, make this proposal for me? And then I have to spend a lot of time reading it and vetting it with the human brain and the people that really know what they're doing. Will that process be shorter than simply writing it from scratch? Maybe that's the essential question. I think that's part of the question. And then the other part of the question is, what risks do I take on on top of the kind of costs going one way or the other? And I want to make sure listeners understand the answer for me is not no, we're never going to do this. I could see a world where using AI to generate parts of proposals could be as common as an agency using AI to help with parts of their evaluation. What I think is, think of it as more a tool, no different from using a macro in, in a spreadsheet software or a formatting function in a word processing software. You wouldn't just hit the button and, and then just never look at it afterwards. There would still be human review and you'd have carefully vetted the software before you use it. Craig Smith is a partner at the law firm Wiley Rhine. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to those tips at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really 
you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, th- Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God 
even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.